<sighs> okay, here we go. My guest on this episode is Brad Kearns, an American author, podcast host, professional speed golfer, masters high jumper, and former professional triathlete. Brad dominated the international triathlon circuit from 1986 to 1995, where he won 31 events worldwide. He's also a 2020 top three world-ranked masters age 55 to 59 high jumper, and back in 2018, Brad broke the Guinness World Record for the fastest single hole of golf ever played. Now today, Brad and I get into all the things that we can and can't or maybe should and shouldn't learn from professional athletes. And we also dig into the difference between hit and hurt. My name is Brock Armstrong. This is Second Wind Fitness. But before we get started... As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair, because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But... If you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest vice, I'm what you would call a coffee snob, if you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com slash coffee. I guess because I caught you in a in a hotel room, you're not in your normal setting. So anyone who sees the video for this is going to be wondering, Brad has some very uh, nondescript art in his house. Yeah. And where's the crazy high jumper on the wall behind Brad <laughs> to distract you? But uh, it is an honor to catch up. I couldn't think of anybody better to to talk about a particular subject that is very much near and dear to my heart because I've watched so many people and I know you have as well, Brad, you've seen so many people fall into this trap of I mean, everything from seeing Michael Phelps's legendary uh, meal plans and nutrition platform on online to just downloading training plans and, and workout programs off the internet from some of our favorite athletes, whether it's Steph Curry or Allison Felix or whoever it happens to be, we tend to gravitate towards our heroes or those professional athletes that catch our eye, rightfully so, and think, well, if I train like them, surely I'll perform like them, right? And the logic does sort of follow. But as you know very well, having been a professional triathlete for many, many, many years racing at the highest level, it's a very different world, isn't it? Yes, we have some problems there. And one of them uh, I learned early on in my triathlon career, because every month the triathlete magazine would feature uh, a pro racer and they'd describe the 
typical training week with an interview and a kind of a short story format. And then it would say, Monday, the athlete swims 4,000 meters, bicycles 60 miles in the hills and jogs an easy six miles in the afternoon. Tuesday, run 14 miles hard training intervals in the morning, p.m., (laughs) swim 5,000 meters. And so what each athlete was doing was describing, of course, their very best ideal week. They're not going to... Perfect week. (laughs) You know, they're not going to talk about the two weeks after that they had to recover from, you know, putting up their best week ever. So you're always looking at, uh, it's sort of that social media aspect where you're looking at uh, the the perfect ideal uh, situation. And when someone's speaking to the media, uh, they're they're sharing just that. They're not talking about the the time when they're, you know, dealing with nagging injuries or, uh, you know, family responsibilities that are causing them to miss a day of training or whatever. And so first of all, we can't even, uh, you know, t- we have to take it with a grain of salt when we see what the elite athlete is doing. And then second of all, why even bother comparing and, yeah. and analyzing an elite athlete's training schedule? Because they are, by definition, uh, genetically pre-selected and pre-selected in many other ways, their lifestyle, yeah. to have this optimal training experience and an incredible ability to withstand uh, stress and recover quickly, unlike the average person who's trying to deal with daily responsibilities and doesn't have those genetic gifts. Right. And I know you've said many times in the past that you were actually asleep as much as you were training in your <laughs> in your racing days. Right. And so what I was able to do, I tried to get the most out of my body for those nine years when I competed on the professional circuit. So everything in my daily life was calibrated toward you know, training and performing and recovering. And this is how I earned my living and paid for the groceries. And so there was nothing that got in the way of my optimal training experience, unlike the average person who's got all kinds of things that are on the priority list before their precious little workout. So one of them was sleep. And as I related, I I slept 10 hours every night and I had a two-hour nap every afternoon for those nine years when I was competing on the pro circuit. So if you have a calculator, people at home, you can add that up. And that was half of my life. I was asleep while I was a professional athlete. And I think that's pretty commonplace where uh, sleep is prioritized, recovery is prioritized. But also I want to add another really interesting element, which was just the general pace of life and the the other uh, stresses and stimulators were all much less than uh, most people think about or talk about. So what I mean is like, um, and, I, and I learned this from training with the big packs of triathletes in San Diego, where, you know, there was a 12 o'clock swim workout and everyone went to the noontime swim. And that's a popular time to swim around the world. In every town and city, you know, the working man will, will rush out of the office, head over yeah. to the swimming pool, change in the locker room in four minutes and be in the water stroking. Uh, and then at, you know, at 52 minutes after the hour, there are, you know, blowing the blow dryer and racing back to the office, tying their tie in the car <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then wolfing down their lunch at their desk. You're describing me. That was me. <laughs> I was trying to train for Ironman while working. Squeeze it yeah. in. Squeeze it in. Squeeze it in. And in contrast, the the athlete who has that leisurely pace through life, I was amazed to notice, you know, we do the swim workout and then sit in the jacuzzi for 40 minutes after yeah. just BSing and chit-chatting and gathering some sun and then very leisurely head over to the locker room, change into the bicycle clothes, ride the bike for another hour or two at a slow pace, and maybe go get a snack and sit there and have a 30-minute energy bar and, and smoothie snack. But everything was just gradual, 
but we got the work done every single day. And it was a tremendous amount of work. But the the way it, in which it was performed um, was so less stressful than the person squeezing and, and filling in every blank in their busy, hectic day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the sleep alone, like most of the stuff that you just described, totally makes sense. And at its core, we always talk about like exercise is stress. It's just another mm-hmm. stress that's placed on your body, much like getting yelled at by your boss or answering emails at midnight or any other stress gets placed on your body. And our, our good friend, uh, Dr. Phil Maffetone is the one of the leaders for me anyway, in realizing that piling stress on top of stress on top of stress, it doesn't matter that one is exercise stress and one is work stress. It's still stress and it still breaks down our bodies. So that's such a good point. Yeah, uh, the scales of justice, right? The the familiar figure of the um, the, the the blindfolded person, and there's two uh, balance things. And if you think about what goes on the stress side versus what goes on the rest and restoration and recovery side, and mainly, uh, you know, it, it's sleep in the evening. Yeah. Uh, but almost everything else, as soon as we wake up, uh, goes on the stress side of the scale. So I'm also advocating strongly for this concept of downtime. And chilling out, which is the lost art now when we have a device in our hands mm. that gives us constant opportunity for stimulation, hyperconnectivity. And no, you're not moving your legs or pedaling the bicycle while you're sitting there uh, working on your social media, but it's still a form of stress to the brain and it still accumulates where all of a sudden life is, is really hectic, stressful, busy and that definitely compromises the body's ability to uh, perform and recover. Yeah, it really comes down to the central nervous system, which is one of those things that we don't think about in terms of fitness. We think, okay, well, central nervous system, sure, that's our our breathing, our respiration, our, our heart rate, all of that kind of stuff. We don't have to worry about that, but it affects and is affected by everything that we do. Oh my gosh, it's such an amazing point to, to un, uncover and unearth. Uh, I was just reading a great book for the second time by uh, the, the famous Canadian sprint coach, Charlie Francis. So mm. thumbs up for the Canadians. He's maybe the most advanced and uh, greatest sprint coach of all time from what he did. His name is mostly offered in uh, the doping scandals of Ben Johnson, but he was an amazing mm. coach. And um, he learned a lot from the East German system. And there's a passage in his book, which is absolutely absolutely amazing where he's talking about how the East German sprinters would prepare to dominate the Olympic games for years and years uh, before, you know, the technology caught up and the coaches went and transferred around the world. And these runners would go out to the track and run uh, 30 meter repeats. They would do four times 30 with 10 minutes rest between the repeats. Wow. Then they would do one times 80 meters with 15 minutes rest. Then they would do one times 100 meters with 20 minutes rest. And then finally, 120 meters with 25 minutes rest. And I'm I'm backing up one, right? So the the point is they rested for so long, it was ridiculous. They're sitting around, they're at the track for three hours and all they did was what most of us consider to be a warm-up. But guess what pace they were running at? They were running at near world record speed for every single one of those efforts. And then they would have a 10-day taper after that pathetically, (laughs) embarrassingly small workout. And then they would go to the championship meet and, and they would crush it. Uh, but of course, the efforts were so explosive and such high quality and that those long rest periods allowed the central nervous system to recover, which is the thing that's responsible for firing the muscles. And so what's happening is instead of 
developing this cumulative fatigue during the workout, which we're all so familiar with when we go to spin class and we go to boot camp and, oh my gosh, the last 10 minutes were hard. My stomach was burning. That's not really an appropriate or optimal way to train, especially if you're not an elite athlete. So we can take some uh, inspiration from the way elite athletes train because they're much kinder and gentler to their body than the average oh. person trying to suffer through a boot camp. They, they're never puking at the side of the track like you see in the TV movie of the, the young man trying to break it four minutes in the mile and the dramatization of everything. They're very well within control at all times. And I just mentioned a sprint example, but I should also mention Iliad Kipchoge, who's maybe uh, arguably the greatest endurance machine that's ever walked on yeah. the planet Earth. Uh, if you don't know... And the Zen master of marathon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his quotes are fantastic too, but he's the guy who broke two hours in the marathon and um, you know is, is a great champion. And he published his training log on the internet and the exercise physiologist had a field day with it. This was several years ago. And they, you know, tried to break down what percentage of his heart rate and his VO2 max was happening through all these workouts. And the point is, the guy trains very, very hard at the very highest level of word performance. He's up at high altitude running, you know, his easy day, uh, I believe was um, 12 miles at six minute pace. That's like his recovery day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. What happens is everything is under control and well within his capabilities. So he doesn't have this narrative of going out there and, and beating himself up and then getting injured and having a bad season and then coming back and having a great race and then, uh, you know, overdoing it again. And that's kind of the story for most athletes even up at the collegiate, at the elite level, they have bad seasons, they have good seasons. I'm watching the Olympics and seeing all these US guys who were made big favorites and they're they're crapping out and performing way below expectation. And I contend that a lot of it is to, due to training errors where their training program is overly stressful. And in contrast, Kipchoge is going week in, week out with this pretty amazing training schedule. But for him, it's not that big a deal. He just goes out there and gets the work done and he's not, you know, limping away uh, to uh, the training, uh, the, the, uh, the rehab table. He just, you know, laces his shoes up and, and, and runs along. So that's really interesting. So it's not that we shouldn't be taking any lessons from the professional athletes. It's actually that we're taking the wrong lesson from the professional uh -huh. athletes and that's trying to right. emulate their paces, their weights, their particulars. But we should be looking at their more general training program, which is it's pretty easy. There's good long rest periods. They're looking after their sleep. They're prioritizing the recovery and stuff. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. I hadn't actually thought of it that yeah. way. I'm, I'm so busy poo-pooing the professional athlete training schedule that I hadn't realized there is something to be learned. And that is that we're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's kind of like um, emulating a, um, a, a wealthy person and you're going to go lease a Lamborghini for 3000 a month <laughs> yes. when you're living in a, a 1200 a month apartment, but you want to look the part when you're out and about on the town. And, and I, I just came up with that analogy because it's like, it, it's pretty accurate where we're trying to extract the wrong things and, you know, kind of shortcut our way to uh, elite performance when really, if we, if we kind of take a few steps back, um, these guys are, you know, building and building and building over years. And whatever their genetic particulars are, they're going to be training for the Olympics. You're going to be training for the community 5K the turkey <laughs> and trying to beat your time from last year. Uh, but Which, the same, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're yeah. both Brad and I are smiling while we're saying that, but that is absolutely a valid goal. We're not diminishing yeah. that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm in the 55 and 
55 and up uh, age division now. So I'm, I am I talk about training for the Olympics, but I'll probably never make it there at, mm. at this rate. But I do want to perform to my level of, you know, goals and expectations. Uh, but if I can do it with the same philosophy, I guess you could call it as an elite athlete where I'm patient, I'm not overtaxing myself, I'm not getting all up in my head and, and causing this mental anguish, which so many people deal with, even on the recreational level where they're super stressed and they're they're moody and cranky if they had a bad workout or they miss a day of exercise and you know if you want to honor the elite example you know by and large these guys are going with the flow much better than the average tightly wound person who's five minutes late to the the gym workout and, and can't get their usual spot in the corner it's interesting that i just finished interviewing um tim wagoner who's he he is turning 50 very soon i just turned 50 Brad's in, well, like he said, you're in the 55. Everybody 50, 50. It's the hot number. It's the hot number to be. But the Tim was talking about how he's actually training for, to. he wants to qualify again for Ironman World Championships for the triathlon in, in Kona, Hawaii. But he's not planning to do that in a matter of weeks or months. He's planning to race his first race where he wants to start trying to qualify a year from now. Ooh, and I think that is just, that's another one of those things that we sort of miss a lot of when we're looking at the professional athletes. They're always racing and they're zipping around. And so we think, oh, okay, well, how long or what's the shortest time frame that I can manage to train for this event mm. in <laughs> rather than like what is the time that is necessary to train for this event in? And also the distances. I don't mean to... Um, you know, negate the incredible passion and the amazing community and the sense of accomplishment that we see in the ultra marathon community and the triathlon community. Uh, but when I look at, let's say, the field for an Ironman distance race, these uh, arbitrary distances that, that they've chosen to call <laughs> Ironman are completely ridiculous. And we have yeah. to remember that the thing started with a bunch of drunk ex-Navy guys having an argument in a bar <laughs> uh, where they, you know, they were not sober and they were trying to throw down and see who trying would be the toughest. Each other. Yeah. That's, how, that's how the Ironman started, people. And then with the marathon, the 26.2 miles, that's the distance from Athens to Marathon. And so <laughs> I contend that by and large for the, for the world, um, if the marathon were 13 miles and the Ironman were a half Ironman, we'd all be better off. And so would so would all the families waiting around at the finish line for 17 yeah. hours. It's like, hey, do a half distance and then we can all go out to brunch afterward and then have a nice day at the beach. And it's th there is a little bit of uh, marketing and, and social programming there that we might want to unwind and say, you know, what's a really honorable and lauded goal is to kick butt in that turkey trot for five kilometers where you're actually racing and you're pacing and you're trying to keep up with the, the younger person with a younger name on their calf. And instead of just kind of uh, shuffling along and making it into a survival fest, because you don't have the time and energy to prepare properly for a 140 mile race. You know, case in point, years ago, I did the Maui Marathon, which is in February, I believe, or maybe it was December, it was middle of winter. I'm, I was living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada at that point. So it's <laughs> absolutely freezing cold. I'm training in minus 30, minus 40 degree weather, going to race in plus 40 or 90, 100 degree weather in, in Fahrenheit world. And, uh, and yeah, we started off the the holiday together, big family holiday, like brothers, sisters, parents, everybody all joined up there. First day we're there. I get up at 
three in the morning, head to the start line and do the, do the marathon. Everybody's waiting around all day for me. I was, it was horrible because I was not ready for the heat. I was not ready for the, the terrain. It took me forever. They're all waiting around for me at the finish line, cursing me because they're supposed to be having this wonderful Hawaii <laughs> vacation. And now they're waiting for Brock. And then for the next three days, I didn't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I ended up spoiling parts of the the vacation like that as well. So I, I definitely, I've lived what you're describing there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it takes a little bit of uh, bravery to kind of step aside from the, the cultural forces and the peer pressure. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from the heart here, listeners, if, if you're offended so far with me ripping on the Ironman distance <laughs> and the and the marathon distance, you know, you, you get swept up into this frenzy. And uh, it's very easy to kind of attach your self-esteem to the outcome of what you're doing and to your identity as a runner or as a triathlete, and then your social networks uh, intertwined, and it becomes potentially um, destructive, uh, you know, physically from you know, causing you to overdo it or do things that aren't aligned with your health, as Maffetone talks about. And then also just psychologically where you're not getting, you know, the proper payoff from from doing all this hard work and pushing and challenging your body. So, you know, it's been cool for me to have this awakening in my adult life where I'd been there and done that and did that uh, triathlon circuit racing where I had, you know, nothing that was really supporting of human health. It was all calibrated toward fitness and toward elite peak performance. And then I had to, you know, clear off the dust when I was 30 years old and retired and say, okay, well, now I'm going to be a dad. I want to be a fit dad. I don't want to be the Mm. dad in the lounge chair. I want to be coaching everything. And, you know, my athletic goals actually turned toward dominating these poor little kids in soccer, basketball, and track for about a decade when I coached my, you know, my son starting at age five and coaching him all the way up to high school years. And so that was kind of what got me out there was I wanted to be a good soccer player so I could score at will against these poor kids and show them how to (laughs) how to play the sport. And it was really great because um, it broadens your perspective of what fitness really is. And it no longer mattered that I was some guy who could go in a straight line, swimming, bicycle pedaling, and then running and go really fast. But when my uh, old lady neighbor needed me to lift some sandbags to block the flooding of her driveway, oh my gosh, I had, you know, I woke up the next morning, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck because I threw a few sandbags around. And so my definition of fitness was so narrow that I had to open up and say, gee, just because I'm uh, an ex-jock here doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm a sorry, sad sack because I can't even make it through an eight-year-old soccer practice without feeling winded or without my knees aching. So that was a beautiful awakening where I had to realize what it was like to go get in the gym, get strong. I know you had your amazing transition because I hadn't seen you for a couple of years. And then this guy shows up with all these huge muscles and you're like, yeah, I've been spending a little more time in the gym. I'm like, yeah, you have. But yeah. maybe you could uh, weigh in here because it is kind of fun to 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 move through the phases. It is. I And yeah, anybody who's been listening to this podcast along the way, I've mentioned a few times that I had my my first time frame of being a, a ballet dancer, professional ballet dancer on on tour, which is always about being as lean as possible while still being strong and capable. And then endurance athlete, pretty much the the same sort of idea, staying as lean as possible. And then, yeah, realizing the same way that you did that each one of those is a particular avenue of fitness or a particular measure of fitness, but it isn't a measure of overall fitness. Mm. And I think sometimes like, you hear people say like, like, oh yeah, you, you do marathons. Oh, you must be so fit. 
well, sure, I'm very good at running. I'm very efficient at running in a straight line, like you said, with a whole bunch of other people and crossing a finish line at a certain amount of time. But that's not a measure of overall fitness. And and yeah, when I started going back to the gym and and getting some putting on some muscle and realizing where my deficiencies were and trying to address those deficiencies in order to to be a more well-rounded or durable human, I'm much better off now than than I was then as a human. And I don't regret, I know you don't regret either the the things that we've done in the past and and stuff, because it it arrived, it or it got us to this place of understanding, but there's, if we can prevent other people from making those mistakes, and actually you brought up the idea of like really racing that turkey trot to the best of your ability, instead of saying it's only a 5k, like, do you hear people saying that all the time? Like they're like, if it's not a marathon, then it's, oh, it's just a half marathon. Oh, it's just a 10k. Have you watched, like, if you watched any of the Olympics, like when they're racing those shorter races, it is not, there is nothing only about that. Oh my gosh. I think, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the greatest athletes are, you know, found in all variety of, of different events. And for sure, it's just as amazing to watch Usain Bolt winning the hundred meters as some guy, you know, winning the, um, the marathon. And we're allowed to pursue, you know, whatever fitness goals turn us on. And so we should mm-hmm. make that clear. And if you insist upon uh, training for the Ironman distance triathlon, there's a way to do it right. Mark Sisson and I wrote a book called Primal Endurance. And uh, oh, we nice. talk about all these ways to mitigate the potential health destructive effects of training. Uh, so that said, um, I kind of uh, argue that most people are interested in feeling healthy and energetic and alert and functional during the day, um, maybe engaging with their kids or fun goals like that, where they can go and play or they can go out and do a, an active vacation and, and entails rock climbing, stand up paddling, doing an obstacle course, whatever the fun things that are involved. And so this broad based concept of fitness, fitness, I think is really popular. And then especially as we get into our age groups, um, that goal of longevity and health span, yeah. It's got to be overpowering for most people. I mean, I'm I'm motivated by a lot of things. One of them is kicking ass in the high jump, but I'm also motivated by a a profound fear of having a bad story to to wind up my my years on the planet. And oh, my goodness, you see the pain and suffering and dysfunction that affects every single one of us and each of our families when we have the cognitive decline and the physical decline that have become so commonplace that there seem to be normal. And, yeah. you know, we see uh, whatever age you turn, whether it's 40, 50, 60, you know, it, things kind of transition into, oh, now I play golf with my buddies and we take a cart because, of course, we wouldn't walk five miles. That's a ridiculously long way. Yeah, I'm 50. That's we don't walk and carry our clubs. Pretty soon, we're just sitting there watching the Olympics and our training logs are empty and our eyeballs are full of watching other people perform. And so, you know, I want to be somebody who's out there, uh, you know, experiencing this this passion and competitive intensity for my entire life. Uh, I no longer wish to, you know, jump in the water and, and swim with, the, with the, uh, the, the hot shots on the pro circuit. But my goals today are just as exciting and rewarding to me as they were when, you know, supposedly I was, you know, more deep into it. You know, these days, I, 10, 15 years ago, I used to go to the Y first thing in the morning and swim with all the, all the other wannabe elite athletes. And 
and we'd be challenging each other and sort of staring each other down. Over the last um, few months, I go down to the beach and I swim with a bunch of 70 plus year old women who we have a ball. We just go out there and just swim around in the in the water and we put in like a good two kilometers still, but mm. we stop and we chat and we look at the crabs and we talk about things along the way. It's just so, such a different different mindset. So anyway, I, you, this is a really great way to to segue into what you're doing now. But before we get into that, it's time to pay our membership fees. Do you like to shop on Amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you. If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon, I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. Okay, so I think we we made a really good case in point for changing the way that we we train and not even necessarily just when you turn 50, because that's my focus, but from all the lessons that we've sort of learned from from the professional athletes, what kind of training are you doing these days or would you advocate for people to do? Oh my gosh, I am obsessed with the the sport of high jump. I love it so much. And it represents, it's sort of a, a metaphor for me to, uh, you know, age gracefully or, or fight that battle successfully because I'm trying to raise the bar and I'm trying to clear this this bar in the sky. And if I can do it, it you know, it's a very complex event that requires a lot of skill, a lot of technique, and of course, power and explosiveness. So um, these types of things are strongly correlated with longevity and overall general health, huh. as opposed to the often destructive effects of anything that's, uh, you know, moderate to uh, serious endurance training, which is kind of my background and, and you know, my long history there. Uh, I pretty much have rejected that because I don't think it, that it's aligned with health in most cases. If you go really slow, so if you're a hiker or a person who walks the neighborhood or likes to cruise on your bicycle around Stanley Park and everything's at a low intensity, of course, being outside and breathing fresh air and getting your heart and lungs going uh, is a huge positive for your overall health and your fitness. But what we see by and large is this extreme approach to endurance exercise where it becomes very easily overly stressful. And if I'm wanting to, you know, capture everybody who's listening, you know who you are when you're pushing it too hard and you have recurring running injuries and all these things that come up and the immune dysfunction and the fatigue during the day and all that kind of stuff that real athletes battle. Uh, but I'll also contend, and there's great research on this, Dr. James O'Keefe is a big proponent. Um, Phil Maffetone talks about this a lot as well, that you can max out your cardiovascular health benefits surprisingly easily. Yeah. And the research is uh, that, that O'Keefe quotes in his great TED talk called Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace. That's the title of his talk. <laughs> it's a great title. There's, there's a bell curve shown where at around two and a half hours of total cardiovascular exercise in a week's time at a comfortable pace. So we're talking about 
brisk walking around the neighborhood to the tune of two and a half hours total for the entire week, or that's, you know, that's one big hike on the weekend, you are dialed in with an A plus in cardiovascular health and disease risk protection from, you know, the, the main things that are knocking people out that are sorry ass sitting on their couch and can't even be bothered to do a, ba- a bare minimum of exercise. And so to think that you can max out your cardiovascular report card so easily, uh, what's happening when you exceed that modest total is you are tempting the health compromising uh, effects such as immune suppression, such as overuse, musculoskeletal injury. Uh, that's an eye opener for a lot of people who are walking into the gym and setting the stairmaster and watching their news on television, and then go- doing that several days a week mm. uh, in the name of fitness. And so, once you're there with that modest total, where do you turn your attention to? And a lot of the longevity research and the health research is on preserving, maintaining muscle mass throughout life. Because muscle mass is strongly correlated with organ function. So if you're carrying functional lean muscle mass on your body, this suggests that you have strong heart, lungs, kidney, liver, all these great things because they're, you know, completely uh, dialed in with with muscles. When you want your lungs to work hard or your heart, of course, you got to start pumping your muscles. Muscles also are attached to our bones and tend to pull on those as well. So that usually correlates with some better bone density and also along with like tendons and ligaments and all of those things. So in terms of just being a durable human, it really is a a good balance to, to keep all of those things in mind. And you actually put on my radar this idea of everybody knows about high intensity interval training or most people listening to this podcast probably know about HIT. But not a lot of people know about HURT. Now, this isn't H-U-R-T, it's H-I-R-T. Since you were the one to introduce me to it, can you explain what that is? Oh my gosh, all credit to Dr. Craig Marker, psychology professor in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and also expert with strength training, kettlebell, uh, and all manner of you know elite peak performance. He's a real thought leader, and he wrote this article, which I contend is one of the most impactful things I've read in decades relating to fitness and uh, athletic training. And so he coined this, uh, this acronym, High Intensity Repeat Training, to compare and contrast with the very popular training modality of high-intensity interval training. And so this idea that most of the HIIT workouts are formulated to be exhausting and depleting, where you go into your spin class and the instructor says, okay, we're going to pretend we're at the Tour de France and we're going to sprint 30 seconds and we're going to do it 10 times with 30 seconds rest. Okay, here we go, 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 go. And you get to your seventh or eighth one and you're fighting exhaustion, muscle burn, and just trying to hang on with your tongue hanging out. <laughs> and then you finish this great workout, you high five the other uh, people within reach on the other bikes, and you have this tremendous endorphin rush because you worked hard and got an amazing adrenaline buzz. And it feels great to have this, you know, pool of sweat accomplishment where you, you push your body. But what happens is when we start to throw these in frequently, And we're going to, let's say CrossFit, hate to pick on them because I love so many things about it. But when you're in there for four or five days a week, 
doing these workouts that last 45 to 60 minutes or whatever they last, where they're asking you once again to do a set of box jumps and once again to do the battle ropes and then run around the block for a quarter mile uh, another time for the seventh time or whatever. Um, what's happening is this is an overly stressful workout experience. You are spiking those prominent stress hormones, those fight or flight hormones, which are desirable in the short term as they're as our as our bodies meant to to respond. But if you're doing it for such a long duration workout, and then you're coming back two days later and doing it again, you are plunging yourself into this immune suppression, hormone dysfunction, overtraining pattern in the name of getting fit. And these are, you know, the most motivated, disciplined, enthusiastic fitness people we have. And they're by and large overdoing it because the workout design is inappropriate, especially for most people, as we talked about at the start. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. And this actually goes back to what you were talking about in terms of like what we can learn from the professional athletes, those really long rest periods you were addressing before where they were running, the sprinters were running 30 meters and then taking a 10 minute recovery. The idea of high intensity interval training is supposed to be that you're accumulating this fatigue. But what ends up happening is the accumulation of that fatigue means you're not actually hitting the numbers or hitting the output mm. that is necessary to get these magical benefits that we saw from like Izumi Tabata doing his legendary research that showed there were boosts of 300% for human growth hormone and, and all of this wonderful stuff. But it was in such a controlled environment and with very specific, they were um, skiers? What? Speed skaters. Speed skaters, that's yeah. right. So they were actually, but they were hitting these intensities and hitting these paces on every one of the intervals where when I go to a spin class, by the last interval, I'm barely pedaling at all because the fatigue is increased. So I'm not actually getting the benefits, the promised benefits of that workout because I'm not able to hit those, those actual speeds and paces and, and intensities. Yeah, Dr. Tabata is is great. He he utters these quotes that are they're so memorable and it's like the the protocol is 4 minutes long. Yeah. That's it. And you, you go to any gym and you see a sign on the board the Tabata class starts at 9 a.m. and then there's another Tabata class at 11 and they they're going for an hour with this magical protocol of 20 seconds on uh, yeah. 20 seconds work, 10 seconds rest, or is that, did I mess yeah. that up? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so if you can do that for four minutes the right way, and Dr. Tabata says the problem is that most people can't last four minutes right. <laughs> because yeah. they're supposed to be going 120% of maximum, just a huge effort, a very short rest, another one, another one, and you're doing eight total. Uh, and most people can only do six or seven properly. And so we've bastardized this thing to turn into this hour-long sufferfest rather than this uh, explosive effort where you're performing at a really high level and the whole deal is over with in four minutes. And so this concept of high-intensity repeat training uh, characterized by Dr. Marker suggests that what you're doing for a workout protocol, you want to have the exact same consistent quality of effort for each work performance. So my favorite example with sprinting is I do um, uh, six to eight times 80 meters of a full sprint down the athletic field or the track. And yeah. so 80 meters is pretty darn short. I used to do longer before I, you know, embrace this idea that my workout shouldn't destroy me for the next <laughs> 24, 36 to 48 hours. And so uh, I'm limiting my effort to, uh, you know, somewhere around 10 seconds for the sprint. 
And in between, I'm taking a six to one uh, rest to work interval. So I'm resting for around a minute, even though I only sprinted for 10 seconds. So yeah. it's ridiculously easy in that respect. I'm not huffing and puffing and towing the line again for yet another effort. Uh, like I'm a, a donkey. I'm more like a thoroughbred racehorse where I'm trying to go with beautiful quality and excellent form and, and keep my heels high and driving those knees high. And so each time I sprint 80 meters, I feel great. It's very explosive. And the sixth one and the seventh one and the eighth one are just as fast, right? The same time mm-hmm. at the finish. They're just as fast as the first or second one. And they're also a similar degree of difficulty. It's not my tongue hanging out trying to finish this workout. So I get a, a gold star from the coach. Every one of them is feeling like a real athlete where I'm, you know, repeating the effort. And then when I get to seven or eight, that's plenty. I'm done. And I don't do that workout very frequently, but it's a very high quality, very explosive session. And because I'm wrapping it up so quickly and heading back to the bicycle to pedal home or to, to, to you know, walk it off, um, the, my stress hormones have spiked appropriately. Yeah. I get that amazing burst of human growth hormone and testosterone into the bloodstream. And then I turn off the faucet and I recalibrate to homeostasis very quickly. Mm. So I'm not this stressed out freak where I'm, I got adrenaline <laughs> flowing through my bloodstream. And then guess what happens 90 minutes after that spin class where we high-fived in the back? I'm over at Jamba Juice ordering the medium smoothie and the breakfast scone, which is uh, significantly more calories than I burned during the extreme workout anyway. Right. And I'm locked into this fatigue-laden carbohydrate dependency a high stress lifestyle pattern rather than modeling that elite athlete who's just done a beautiful morning workout and is living to tell about it in the afternoon and feels fine because again, it's only 80 meters or whatever. So that's my example of an appropriate sprint workout for almost anyone in the world, unless your name is Noah Lyles or uh, Andre DeGrasse, gold medal for Canada in the 200 meters. Let's go watch those guys work out. Guess what? They are putting in some amazing work. And the exercise physiology research shows that when Andre DeGrasse crosses the finish line of his eighth 200 meter in the workout and you take his blood lactate, he's at (laughs) five millimolars instead of 25, like an average Joe who's trying to keep up and and is burning up like crazy. In other words, he experiences less cellular destruction and uh, stress hormone production than the average person trying to do, you know, an equivalent level of difficulty workout because he's an elite athlete. So let's forget about him for a moment and just say that you want a consistent quality of effort when you are doing hard stuff, when when it's time to do those things, whether it's kettlebell swings, whether it's battle ropes, whether it's jumping up and down on the box in the gym. And when that time comes, when you feel a little bit of tightness in the lower back is now coming on. Oh, there go my hamstrings. I can feel them Mm. uh, a little sharp on that final one. That's when you pull the plug and go home and live to see another day and come back and then have this aspiration of building, building, building over time to where you actually become a powerful, explosive athlete without all the the bronchitis and the the knee pain and, uh, you know, the the calf that's blown up after a, a routine workout. But Brad, he says knowingly, if I plan to do 10 repeats, but I quit after eight because I'm starting to fall off my pace, doesn't that mean the workout is completely wasted and I'm not getting any benefit from it? Right. I mean, who's the boss here? And unfortunately, we've outsourced 
our uh, intuition for how to treat our bodies and, and build fitness. We've outsourced it to coaches for many people starting when they were, were little and they're just programmed to, uh, you know, turn their, turn their body over to the personal trainer or to the group exercise program and the, and the peer influence and all these things. And boy, if there's anything that you can get me started about is, you know, the, uh, the difficulties I had as an athlete uh, trying to align with the programming from, you know, mainstream fitness. And it was really stressful and destructive. And um, it worked out very poorly for me to uh, try to follow the coached workouts to the letter because yeah. I was so competitive and disciplined and driven and I'll do whatever it takes to win. Oh, isn't that impressive? Well, the athletes that I'm most impressed with, and I've been around some of the, the world's top athletes, they know when to say when, and they're mm. very, very disciplined not to set the alarm at 5 a.m. and get out in the snowstorm when it's minus 30. That's not too impressive at, at, a certain, at a certain point. It's beyond that where you have that intuition to say, you know what, I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to end my season early because I've performed so incredibly well and beyond expectation. And that means that, you know, I've gotten a lot on my body and it's time to build in some rest, even though I feel great and I'm still psyched. That's the sign of a true champion mm. that knows just where that beautiful balance point is and is able to turn off the noise of people saying, wait, why don't you do one more race <laughs> or, or whatever the, uh, the notion is that gets us into trouble. Yeah, I had an opportunity to go and train with some of the university um, hurdlers at one point. And the the beauty of working one-on-one -on -one or in person, I guess, not one-on-one -on -one, because it was one-to-many, but in person with the coach was that we did exactly what you were describing when we were running our sprints. As soon as you dropped off your pace, Walter would say, okay, you're done and pull you pull you off. And then the people who were still on pace would do some more some more repeats. And it was difficult as an endurance athlete to accept that and not take it as like a punishment or a <laughs> blow to my ego that I got pulled off the track. Yeah. And he's like, no, man, like you're done. You got the benefit because right. you were hitting the paces until your body said you weren't. You have gotten the maximum benefit you can from this workout right now. Anything above this is just going to hurt tomorrow's workout. It's not a ego blow. It's not a wasted workout. It's, it's exactly what your body needed in in that very moment and to your point of of cutting the season short i have heard you in the past say that you um dnf'd as often as you podiumed and dnf for people out there did not finish um, so brad had the wisdom in the moment to say this isn't my day i'm going to save my energy i'm putting words in your mouth but i'm going to save my energy for another battle that's exactly right i, I don't I don't, I don't judge that in myself. I was a pro and I was there competing for paychecks. So I didn't really have that compelling need to, to get my body across the finish line. I know a lot of people, their goal is to finish. So that's great. And a DNF is, you know, they, they feel like that's a disgrace. But if you're looking at the big picture, um, I contend that these races will always be here. <laughs> Brock, yeah. don't worry. I mean, like with COVID, we had to skip a, a season with uh, the Boston Marathon was canceled and all that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. when, when, when you're ready, the race will be there. And I think a lot of times we, we back into it where, you know, we paid our entry fee. Oh, there's no transfer. So I'm going to eat $180 if I don't show up and do this race, even though I have a, a 101 fever, I'll just fight my way through it. And that's not really, I think, the intention of this uh, fitness movement. 
and this beautiful opportunity that we have to uh, be miniature style athletes, no matter who we are, we can balance that with uh, daily life. We're not all working on farms or in factories mm-hmm. where every ounce of energy is going toward stamping the steel for the uh, the automobile. Now we have this free time. We have these you know cognitive and low physical demand careers where we can really pursue this the right way. And to do it the right way, you got to take care of your body and you know prioritize that at all times. And then you know peak performance flows from that wonderful starting point rather than forcing it and pushing it. And I think somehow the fitness industry has has you know preyed upon our vulnerabilities to present this programming that is inherently overly stressful and so hey shout out if you're if you're teaching a boot camp class whoever you are look around the room at the 27 minute mark and go put your hand on someone's shoulder and say hey you're doing great i, I have a suggestion and that is you know, cool down for seven minutes and get out of here and forget the yeah. rest because your <laughs> your your face is purple or uh, now you're not barely making it up to the six inch step when I'm asking you to jump up and down. You know, there's a there's a time to say when, just like you're you describe with your coach. And yeah. if we had more of that out there, I guess more individualization, more personalization, uh, that would be that would be really great and and less you know no pain no gain ethos, which is still hanging around every gym, every street corner, every trail. Yeah. Maybe the phrase has been retired, but the attitude is still very prevalent. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, I couldn't have summed all of what we've talked about up better than you just did. But before I let you go, if you had the opportunity to give all the listeners just three piece of it, pieces of advice, strategies, workouts, whatever it happens to be, whatever you think would be most valuable to to give the listeners, what would those three be? Oh my gosh, here we go. Um, <laughs> okay. It's coming straight from the heart. This is what's on my mind. And these are some super awesome tips that'll change your life. And I think the first one is a, a morning routine. Uh, and you can go look uh, on YouTube, Brad Kern's morning routine. You can see this crazy thing that I do every single morning. But I started this very slow and conservatively. I wanted to do something every morning, uh, a sequence of stretches and, and little drills so that I'd make my muscles a little more resilient for when I did my sprint workout once a week. And so I built this little routine. It was super easy. And then over the last four and a half years, I haven't missed a single day. So it's now become this kind of streak thing where I can talk about it in public and say, I haven't missed a day. So I'm certainly not going to miss a day anytime soon. But I know now that every single morning, this is how I start my day. And that contrasts me from what 84% of Americans do. They do the exact same thing first thing in the morning. Do you know what it is, Brock? I'm going to take a wild guess and it's pick up your phone, check your email, check your social media. They reach for their mobile device and 50% of that 84% have the mobile device within reach. So they do it while they're still in bed. And the behavior psychologists contend that as soon as you reach for the phone and you put your brain into that uh, dopamine triggering instant gratification reactivity mode, it's very difficult to extricate from that mode to the desirable high level thinking, strategic planning, reasoning mind that we want to have first thing in the morning where we can look at our to-do list or our gratitude journal or whatever it is we aspire to do and have that nice chill beginning to the day. So instead, I do something physical and it's sort of a proactive uh, behavior that's advocating for my health and my fitness. That'll really set you up for leading an active fit lifestyle. 
um, extra bonus credit is to get outside. Mm. And so you can get your eyeballs exposed to direct sunlight because this will uh, calibrate all very important hormones that give you energy in the morning and then also kind of have a relative effect to uh, a nice evening wind down pattern where you get that dim light melatonin onset. So if you expose your eyeballs to direct sunlight, and I don't mean sun like bright, shiny, it can be cloudy out there because the sun's powerful enough. You will have this. uh, I live in Pacific Northwest, so that's good. Otherwise I'd be screwed. (laughs) An overcast day is just fine. But when you get outside without the window filtration or without sunglasses or a car window, um, you're going to get that desirable spike of cortisol and serotonin a desirable suppression of adenosine. That's exactly what coffee does as well. And so this is better than coffee is getting out into open air and doing some physical movement. It can be something as simple as uh, the yoga sun salute sequence. It can be as simple as leashing up your dog and taking one lap around the street. And that's your morning routine every single day. And for me, with those athletic goals, mine involves these you know, fitness and strength drills. Uh, but that's been a wonderful life-changing thing. So whatever degree you can commit to, The key thing here is to do the exact same thing every day and thereby you don't have to get out your creative juices and decide what cool workout. It doesn't become a stress on itself. It's it's just robotic. You're just in, I'm sort of in a meditative state because all I do is count the sequencing as I go through 40 scissor kicks and 20 frog legs and then 15 leg swings. And so I'm just counting, counting, counting. That's all I'm thinking about. And then when I emerge from this, uh, this sequence, I'm alert. I feel kind of calm. Uh, I'm ready to tackle everything that's coming up my way during the day, including all the sources of distraction and instant gratification that are taking me off task. Because now I've shown I can I have the discipline to do something when I start the morning. So I that could be all three, or that could be one. That does count. I was just going to say, Brock, we're on the wavelength. Uh, if you're <laughs> listening to the show, Brock and I are looking at each other on camera, and it's like. Uh, I was going to say that's, that's well, that's well more than three right there. If you can, if you can handle that. It definitely is. Yeah. Get outdoors, move your body first thing in the morning, make it less or as stress less as possible by doing the same thing, or at least knowing what you're going to do. So you don't have to pile stress on top of yourself. Don't pick up your phone Mm. (laughs) at least for a while. Um, what else do we have in there? Expose yourself to sunlight. Did I miss anything? No, I think those are... So yeah, we had probably four or five in there. <laughs> those are, And then guess what? Since I knocked this out, there are many days where I don't do another inch of exercise because we're busy. We're driving five hours and then we got this going and that going. And I know that happens to a lot of people. There are also many days where I finish the routine and I'm so uh, you know pumped up that I'll transition right into a proper workout. So then I'll go hit the weights or I'll go to the track. And what a wonderful way to start a workout of coming off this body positioning and, you know, calibration effort. But no matter what, if you can knock that out in the morning, you're going to have like an elevated platform from which you launch all formal workouts, whether or not they happen on that certain day. And you may have just blown some minds by saying whether or not they happen. Right, right. (laughs) But that's a that's a topic for another day, because I will definitely be having Brad back on the podcast. You can all count on it. We've been friends now for I'm thinking close to a decade. And back uh, when you were a little skinny runner guy before you got then then he went into big big bodybuilder guy and now he's all around fitness man matching the muscle chart in the background of your video. Yes, 
<laughs> I have a, an anatomy chart on my wall because everybody has one of those in their house, don't they? Love those. I have one on my one of my windows of my uh, my browser and I, I never close it because it's kind of, you know, you got to remember that stuff sometimes. Yeah, you don't need to know the names, but just knowing where each one of those muscles are and what's responsible, what they're responsible for. So good. And this conversation was so good. And people can find you. I will put links in the in the show notes. But if you just had one call to action, where should people go to? Get oh my more gosh! About you? If you go to bradkearns.com, my newly improved, updated website, <laughs> you will be regaled by crazy videos of speed golf world record and oh, yeah. high jumping and the morning routine. And I love to connect with people. And you can listen to the B Rad podcast. Uh, go look for the Brock Armstrong episodes and uh, start from there, and then carry on. Thank you so much, Brad. It's great to see you. (laughs) Thank you, listeners. Fun times. This has been Brock Armstrong and Brad Kearns. Thanks for listening to Second Wind Fitness.